Hello and welcome to Classical Stuff You Should Know, a podcast about the ancient world, old ideas, and books that we want to talk about for an hour or so. My name is Thomas Magby. I am joined, as always, by Mr. Graham Donaldson. Hello. And Mr. A.J. Hannenberg. This guy. This guy over here. Now, that guy over there, A.J., is going to be talking today. He is going to be talking about pirates. Uh, it's something I've been very excited to hear him talk about. Um, well, now my episode is going to sound lame. <laughs> it was going to sound lame no matter what. So um, <laughs> so with pirates, um, all of you on YouTube can see. I'm sorry. Was that too much too soon? <laughs> sorry. Harsh, man. I'm just trying to start with high energy. And you didn't even tell the audience why. Like, not just maybe not because of my content, just because it's me. <laughs> like, you didn't tell them it's Let, lame because of my content. You're yeah. like, your episode is just going to be I didn't mean the content, just to be clear. Thank you. It's Again, we've made reference to, I haven't made the joke yet, so I'm really crushing it right now, but we make a joke at the, at the beginning that won't make sense until you listen to the episode. So let me try one more time. You ready? Yeah. Let's Great. So we're <laughs> it's uh, le- maybe less insulting this time. <laughs> no, no, I'm going to keep it the same level of insulting. Great. Remember, you're, Perfect. Yeah, just, okay. But we're talking about pirates today. Uh, as everyone on YouTube can see, we brought a pirate map with us. And as everyone knows on a pirate map, um, the X marks the spot. So we're going to be talking about pirate treasure and how to um, see where the X marks the spot marks. You're talking oh. about marks. Hopefully, if we just divide the treasure equally amongst us, yeah, that's in exactly a centralized right. pot. Yeah, there are no. Well, cap- really, we don't just divide the divide the treasure. We take over the means of producing treasure. <laughs> yeah, so the, the there, there are no captains and then on the ship. distribute that means among us, and then we'll have treasure forever. Is that wow? That's and it'll abolish the difference between the pirate who got the treasure yeah. and us. Good. So it'll all be the same. So still booty. Easy, easy there, buddy. This it's is everybody's a, booty. Is, no, I don't like this at <laughs> all. Which is this really is funny because it kind of is everybody's booty. Uh oh. Um, all right. Well, so today we are talking about. But that's what Plato talked about. That. So. Well, see, I had a whole different intro in mind. So I'm sorry here, that I introduced the episode instead of you. Do you want yeah. to intro your own episode because the intro was so bad? <laughs> Go for it, bud. A specter. Okay. Is haunting Europe. The specter of communism. All the powers of old Europe have entered into a holy alliance to exorcise this specter. Pope and Tsar, Metternich and Guizot, French radicals and German police spies. Where is the party in opposition that has not been decried as communistic by its opponents in power? Where is the opposition that has not hurled back the branding reproach of communism against the more advanced opposition parties, as well as against its reactionary adversaries? Two things result from this fact. One, communism is already acknowledged by all European powers to be itself a power. Two, it is high time that communists should openly, in the face of the whole world, publish their views, their aims, their tendencies, and meet this nursery tale of the specter of communism with a manifesto of the party itself. To this end, communists of various nationalities have assembled in London and sketched the following manifesto to be published in the English, French, German, Italian, Flemish and Danish languages. Okay. That's the actual introduction to the communist really? manifesto. Okay. Yeah. They sounds like Reddit. <laughs> they, okay. They come out firing and it it's, I, I chose to read it cause it is kind of funny. Like it's I don't, for how dramatic it is. So I don't, I don't, as I go through this episode, I will probably point out bits that I find funny. I am not trying. <laughs> I'm, I I don't want our listeners to be super offended that I am negating the historical significance of this particular publication and some of the actual good ideas it's had and the the historical context, which is far different than we find ourselves in now. Like back then, factories really were like a dangerous place to go. And so I'm, I'm 
just at the outset, I want to say, as I point out things that I find funny, I am, I'm not trying to undermine it as a, as a work that you should read. You really should read this, especially because it'll only take you 60, 70 minutes. It's not long. Really? It's like 40 or 50, it is 60 manifesto. pages. But didn't you say you had to read it a few times? Like it's dense. It- it's dense, but if you sit down and read it one straight time through, it's really, it's not that bad. Okay. Uh, I, if you have always been afraid of sitting down and reading the communist manifesto, I, one of the reasons I'm going to point out all this fun stuff is because it is kind of fun to read. It's kind of a treat seeing where all the communist ideals come from and how how they conducted themselves in context. I, I didn't do a whole lot of historical contextualizing on this piece. I do know that when it was originally published, it was not in the English, French, German, Italian, Flemish, and Danish languages. I think it only reached about three of those oh, okay. before they kind of quit. And then it fell into obscurity for a long time. And uh, I could... I wish I could say more about Marx as a person. Wait, but you're saying the communists had ambitious plans that they couldn't, uh, they, <laughs> oh couldn't they couldn't meet? Oh my gosh. <laughs> so it starts. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, they, they couldn't quite get there. And as an added bonus, I went and tried to read the manifesto of Occupy Wall Street as something in addition. It does not even come close to the literary quality well, of the I'm communist sure. manifesto. It's, it is probably two pages long and there's almost no theory. It's just... Eat the rich. Or a list got, of, yeah, kind of just eat the rich. That's kind of the whole thing. It's not it more does. specific. It's not like a list of demands or things that they are going for. Sorry, no, I mean it's it's just not great. Let's like do you it. can you can I'm go excited. find it. I, I would much rather read the Communist Manifesto than that. Let's go okay, so the Communist Manifesto is in four parts, and I'm gonna kind of ignore part three. Part three I find to be maybe less applicable now. You might find it of historical interest, but it's them talking about the differences between their party and the socialist movements of the past and the current socialist movements around their era. And so that differentiation probably doesn't mean as much to us now. Part one is... It's like, they're lame, we're hardcore, that kind of thing? Kind of, yeah. Really? It's exactly that. Like, this is how they failed and how we will succeed. Gotcha. And how we relate to these other movements and why they weren't quite successful, right? So maybe maybe we won't spend time there. I think if you're into history, that'll be a little more compelling for you, but not so much for us. Part one is about the bourgeois and the proletarian. It's kind of establishing the worldview of communism. And then, so the problem. And then part two is the solution. Part three is other movements. And then part four is final words. So I'm going to read you a chunk of the final words, but we're going to mainly focus on parts one and part two, right? Here's the situation we find ourselves in, and here is sort of the communist solution. All okay. right, you guys, you guys up for that? Sure. Let's, let's do it. Okay, so part, part one, and I actually plan to read quite a few chunks of it just to kind of give you guys a feel because it's, it's pretty incendiary and the writing style is kind of fun. Like they don't pull any punches and it's not too theory heavy. So I'll read you pieces. I, I have a bunch of quotes here. I don't know if I'll read all of them, but... You know, just just buckle up. There's going to be some some language directly from the text, so you as a listener can kind of get a feel for what it, what what it, how reading it would go. So right after that bit that I read you is part one. That was the whole introduction. It's just the Communist Manifesto. It'd be like on the it's like the title page, mm-hmm. right? The, a specter is haunting Europe, and let's give a definition behind that specter. Okay. Is it weird that he calls his movement a specter? Isn't that? Well, he's, he's kind of saying, like, everyone has this evil nursery rhyme of us, so we're just going to say what we actually, what we actually are, are, right? Yeah. They've recognized us as a power, so sure. let's kind of codify all of our stuff into one, one spot, okay. right, where you can figure out what we're actually doing. So I'll, I'll read the first, I don't know, maybe two paragraphs here, or, or chunks of the first two paragraphs. The history of all hitherto existing society is the history of class struggles. 
free man and slave, patrician and plebeian, lord and serf, guildmaster and journeyman, in a word, oppressor and oppressed. Stood in constant opposition to one another, carried on an uninterrupted, now hidden, now open fight. A fight that each time ended either in a revolutionary reconstruction of society at large or in the common ruin of the struggling classes. Okay, so right there, he's making some pretty big claims. Yeah. What do you guys think so far? So that's that's like the big historical move, or that is the um, heuristic that he uses, that he's introduced, right? That history is understood purely as class struggle. Yes. Yeah. And for listeners, long-time listeners, we, we talked about this um, when it's applied to history in May, one of Maybe's episodes. Was it The History of Private Life? Is that the That's name it. of the book? Yeah. Yep. So that is a little heuristic that gets applied to lots of different things. Um, uh, and history being sort of the first one is, is sort of recasting and revisioning history. I don't really know what, um, I guess maybe the, what would be the, the heuristic of history in competition to this? That history is... Well, there's a bunch of different ways to look at history. Yeah, instead you of it do being a, as a class struggle, you would look at it as... Like the, the story of great... Like I've heard stories of great men. Like great you just men. Trace, trace the exploits of great people through history. Or you can do holistic views, which yeah. is where you study sort of every aspect of a society, not just the class struggle, and see everything through that lens, but see through it as maybe... You know, you look at the lens of economics. You look how religion has affected a sure. certain society, right? All of these different forces combine in history, and or holistic is difficult, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. Or a progressive view, like it was—it's always getting better, and so then we sort of use that as her heuristic to talk about these sort of advances, sort of like a technological, uh, you know, technological utopias kind of view. Yeah. So from your from your guys' knowledge, is this the origin of critical theory? Like where where kind of the beginning is of it begins? Yes. So that heuristic is that gets yes. that gets adopted. Into yeah. Just say because uh, it Marxism is a critical theory, right? So critical just in the sense of you're looking at it through a certain lens that will then get picked up by, again, this is all history of private life, but it gets picked up by that, that Annalis school that we talked about, mm-hmm. and then it develops. So what starts as a class focus will move into, pick your lens, a gender focus, where the oppressed oppressor is male-female, and then you can apply that to different methods. But he's Marx is focused just on classes at this point, and mm-hmm. he means economic classes. He doesn't mean any other No, no, category. yeah, there's no, yeah. Other, no other categories. Yeah. You, you either own production or you are produced like you work you, in the own you place are either owned. oppressor or you are oppressed yes people fit neatly into these two categories and this is fundamentally what history is about which Aww. is one of my criticisms of this is that he he talks about only these two camps but then he mentions all of these side camps mm-hmm. but doesn't give a, a very clear view of how they fit in is except in a couple of oh, cases are you talking about marks no no so not the part three of it you're saying he'll talk about groups of people and they're not clearly oppressor or oppressed well, he, he sort of mentions them offhand as he's talking about other things. Yeah. And he doesn't say where they fit, really, yeah. if they're oppressed or oppressor. Sure. He kind of talks about how they everyone gradually fall. Well, I'm getting ahead of yeah. myself, yeah. but sure. everyone is Probably gradually falling. Probably not when we get there, because right. I'd be curious. Yeah, okay. So fr- from the end notes, I wanted to, at the outset, give a really pure definition of what bourgeois, bourgeois and proletariat are, so that you guys can, like... I never really knew the big difference, how it was originally defined. And so this is by Engels himself, one of the co-authors of this thing, from a later edition. So by bourgeois is meant the class of modern capitalists, owners of the means of social production and employers of wage labor. By proletariat, the class of modern wage laborers who, having no means of production of, of their own, are reduced to selling their labor power in order to live. So... 
Bourgeois, you own the means of production, yep. right? So I own a factory and I employ wage labor. Proletariat is a wage laborer who does not own any means of production and has to sell my own labor to live. What about like a so white subsistence, subsistence farmer? Is he both proletariat and bourgeois at the same time? Because he owns the tools that he uses to produce, but he provides the labor. So I think I think what I mean I'm, I may Sorry. be getting ahead of myself here. That's fine, but he would say that over time, what's going to happen is the means of production will be consolidated into one big thing. Yep. Somebody's going to buy more and more farms. They're going to get richer and richer and richer, and then eventually that middleman is going to be reduced to proletariat. Gotcha. He will lose his farm and he'll become a wage laborer on the farm that he used to own. The servile state. And I don't think it's in Communist Manifesto, and it might be in Capital, but he. Uh, Marx has a fondness for what you just described, that subsistence farming level, yeah. or or a, a fondness for, I don't remember the name of it, and I'm sure one of you do, where you are working for a lord, and you have, you know, you need to get 40 bushels of whatever in the course of a week, and if you get it done early, you get the rest of your time back. He, he enjoys this? Yes. Oh, so, so he's a medieval uh, <laughs> Catholic. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> so, uh, um, again, that's not in the manifesto because the manifesto is like the condensed version of the ideology. But just to say what you're describing is like that ownership is good. Gotcha. Even if you don't, even if you're poor, you still own your means of production. Okay. That's a positive thing. In his yeah. This wasn't, wasn't the only thing he wrote. He wrote a bunch of other yes. stuff too. And he was sort of a social philosopher. Yes. And so he, if you are thinking, man, Marxist is as, as a simpleton, just by this basic manifesto that they have, I, I would encourage you to go, go look at his other stuff. Right. I, I, I think it would be easy to sweep him, sweep him away offhand, but I don't think he really deserves that. Okay, so he's got the beard to back it up too, right? That is <laughs> to back up any criticism of of a thinker. Man, uh, that's that should be my next project is cultivating a nice beard. Hundred percent. Okay. Out of all three of us here, you have the best one so far. Yeah. Okay, so he says the modern bourgeois society that has sprouted from the ruins of feudal society has done away with class antagonisms, or sorry, has not done away with class antagonisms. It has only established new classes, new conditions of oppression and new forms of struggle in place of the old ones. So he's kind of pointing out that this sort of grew out of feudal society, but where we would say we don't have lords and serfs anymore and we don't have that sort of thing, he'd say, yeah, we do, it's just different, right? We have different classes. There's still that class struggle. And society as a whole, and this is another quote, is more and more splitting up into two great hostile camps, into two great classes, directly facing each other, bourgeois and proletariat. Okay, so that's sort of the premise. We have oppressor and oppressed. We have bourgeois, proletariat, and everyone is sort of centralizing into those two great opposed camps. That's how we see society society today. And the and they're ticked at each other. And yeah, endless conflict between. Well, the two. not the beginning. No, at the beginning, it's it wasn't a huge deal. What exacerbated it, and this is the next next section he goes into, is that it's it's growth of industry that has been the problem. We discovered America, we sailed around the Cape, we, we have sort of connected the great, the great nations of the world by means of railroad. I mean, this was written in the 1800s, and so everything is just, industrialism is just sort of popping off, and every, all of a sudden, I can move goods from my country to another country relatively easily. I can move them across America really quickly. America has a great need for goods, and America is sending more goods, and all of a sudden, what used to be these little factories for a small town became multinational, perhaps global factories. Right. And so it, it sort of grew and grew and grew and pushed other classes from the Middle Ages into the 
background and every advancement of the bourgeois has corresponded with a political advance of that class. That's another small quote. So as they have advanced and they've gotten more and more clout and more and more means of production and more and more cash and more and more influence, so their power has grown politically. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. All right, do you guys find like find that to be true? So you are you are welcome to comment at any point about stuff that you have have beef with. It's a plot. It's a that, that makes sense that people as they gain more money would have more influence and that they, you know, if everyone is at some level self serving, they want what's best for them. Of course, they're going to build laws around them. Like when at, talking at this like high level, it's really hard to disagree with any of that. Uh, I, and I don't feel equipped enough as a historian. Again, he's writing in the 19th century. I don't know what specific historical things he's pointing to, but there's probably a lot of truth to that, right? That mm-hmm. there are people who are in power. They want to stay in power. They'll do anything to stay in power. And that kind of sets up this whole theory. Like it's hard to push back on those generals, right? And there were, there were elements of this that were incredibly haunting for me as a modern day American, right? As the, as the people who own production gain more and more power, they get more and more sway politically. I'm thinking super PACs, lobbyists. One of our, one of our great industrialists was just president. Right. In fact, many of our industrial great industrialists become presidents. Usually they're guys that have huge business deals and run really big corporations and have placed themselves firmly as bourgeois owners of production. Right. I was trying to think of, is it the jungle, the Upton Sinclair? Uh, It's not a novel. It's like a account of a meat factory and like the, you know, people lose limbs and they get thrown into the meat production. Like in this, he's writing 20 or 30 years after the death of Marx. So like, you know, you said this at the beginning, there were horrible living conditions that came from a more industrialized world. And so then seeing a pushback to it makes a lot of sense. Right. And factories were horrible. And That's even I mean. child labor wasn't yes. like yeah. child labor was still a thing. Your little kids could go and work in factories and work themselves to the bone. I think, wasn't it, oh, wasn't it Dickens that had to work in a factory for a while? Like a textile Maybe. factory, I, even as a child, because his parents were in debtor's prison. I think that was the deal. He had to work in a, it was just, it's just a bad situation. And so seeing pushback against that, that form of living, (laughs) it totally makes sense. Right. Okay. So as they have grown up, the, the people who run the States more become a committee for like managing the affairs of the whole bourgeois, right? They want to keep industry kind of chugging. So here's another quote for you. The bourgeois, wherever it has got the upper hand, or bourgeoisie. Sorry, I actually had to look up the different difference between bourgeois and bourgeoisie. Bourgeoisie is the whole group. Bourgeois is like an individual or an individual's behavior. So, the bourgeoisie, whenever it has got the upper hand, has put an end to all feudal, patriarchal, and idyllic relations. So, if it gets the upper hand, it just sort of does away with all other relationships. It has pitilessly torn asunder the motley feudal ties that bound man to his natural superiors and has left remaining no other bond between man and man than naked self-interest and callous cash payment. So when the guys in charge get the upper hand, they do away with everything and all that's left is sort of a cash relationship. What do we think? What is that everything? When he's talking about the natural bonds between man and their superiors, what does he mean? I think he's referring directly to feudal society. Right. Like a loyalty between lord and serf. So the superior meaning like someone of better quality? Well, lords, lords and serfs, I think. Yeah. So how come lords aren't just bourgeois? Good question. He seemed, there, there seems to be sort of a nostalgia for the feudal system is, here, and especially even the, even the system of guilds. Is it because it's guilds I can get behind? Is it just because um, the bonds between knight and lord or peasant and lord isn't just monetary? I think so. Okay. And it's not the continual need for more. Yeah. And if your primary job as a serf is to make food for like the 
the plot of land that the Lord controls, there's an end to it. They only eat so much. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, so yeah. instead of it being, we need to grow profits 20% a year, it's we, we uh, need to have dinner. Yeah. And then once you're done, week. you're done. And, and it will then, not, it will, it won't be a situation where the Lord is compelled. I mean, this is maybe a rosy view of it. Maybe he was, his view, but compelled to pay him less and less and less as yeah. that Lord competes with the international means of production, which I, I say might be a rosy view because Lords had to compete with other Lords. Sure. I had to have enough yes. money to make moves and buy land right. and pay armies and stuff. Mm-hmm. I think maybe, maybe not realizing the, the impact of money in history yes. is maybe yeah. he's looking at that a little rosily. I mean, I've all, my sympathies with Marx have always been that he, um, is good at highlighting the problem and is bad at coming up with the solution. Which maybe we'll get to. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay. I'm going to finish this quote. Cause I think he's right. Like I, I think when we hear this, right. I think yeah. the, he's correct. Like, you know, if you reduce society to just, um, uh, cash monetary payments over time, it does have this sort of corrosive effect on the bonds between human beings. Like, it, you know, you, it, if, if you know, my loyalty to you is only that you pay me. Yeah, exactly. Or if you think about like, if that was the, the primary mechanism of a family, right? Right. Like over time, that family is going to cease to function in any sort of yeah. feelings of duty or love. Sure. Yeah. So to continue, it has drowned the most heavenly ecstasies of religious fervor, of chivalrous enthusiasm, of Philistine sentimentalism in the icy water of egotistical calculation. It has resolved personal worth into exchange value and in place of the numberless and indefeasible chartered freedoms has set up that single unconscionable freedom, free trade. <laughs> in one word, for exploitation, veiled by religious and political illusions, naked, shameless, direct, brutal exploitation. So, you know, as it sweeps away all these old relationships and cash is the only thing left, it means exploitation, right? I'm going to exploit you as a worker, pay you as little as possible that you can keep yourself alive on and keep the rest for myself, right? Okay, so, but that, that isn't sort of where it ends, right? The need, the need for constantly expanding markets has meant a need for destabilization, right? So as, as the market grows, it sweeps away local markets, Right? If I'm a huge industrialist and I, I need more markets and I need more workers and I need more factories, I can go into a smaller country with a little less power with my extra money, set up a factory, and because everyone can work there and get money, I can actually crush any local market. Yep. And it means that I have a bigger reach to get non-indigenous raw material. Right, I can get raw material from everywhere. And so this kind of imp- Impel, compels the involvement of the world in the class struggle. Now it's no longer a local cr- class struggle. Maybe the, just the people in, say, Leipzig, right? It's the people in Leipzig and anywhere nearby that has raw material to, to give or cheap labor to be exploited or any of that stuff. So I include them and in, do, in so doing, sort of begin to erase national ties, right? There is no more local market. I'm erasing their national, national identity by or bringing them regional. in. regional. Or regional. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think it's it's more, I mean, yeah. But it expands at each level, right? Yes. So it starts as regional, become, mm-hmm. you're losing loyalty every size sure. you increase. So mm-hmm. I think it's making the same point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there's here, here's a fun sentence. I, I just love his writing. It's so, like I said, it's so incendiary and passionate and just hits so hard. The bourgeoisie, by the rapid improvement of all instruments of production, by the immensely facilitated means of communication, draws all, even the most backward nations, into civilization. 
The cheap prices of its commodities are the heavy artillery with which it batters down all Chinese walls, with which it forces the barbarians' intensely obstinate hatred of foreigners to capitulate. It's kind of fun, right? I got cheap stuff, and I'm going to knock down your walls to make more cheap stuff. Okay, so, so far we got two, two camps. They're, they're opposed, and we are, we're spreading those two camps into every population of the world by means of expansion and destabilization. Yep. But we, we get to a problem where the conditions of the society are too narrow to comprise the wealth created by the bourgeois, right? So we, we expand and we expand and we expand and sometimes there's an overproduction mm-hmm. and, and people stop buying. So we have to figure out how to solve that problem and grow even further. So we, we can do this by a couple of ways, by mass the destruction of a mass of productive forces, so I can destroy a couple of factories and thereby create want, or by the conquest of new markets and by the more thorough exploitation of the old ones. So those are my two options. When I've overproduced and I don't have a market anymore, I can either blow my stuff up and create want for a little while or blow somebody else's stuff up, or I can just exploit better and spread to new markets. Mm-hmm. I think the latter is probably what we see happen more often because who Going wants to, to destroy markets. their own factories, yeah, sure. right? right? And so now I have to expand even further beyond. Okay. And so I pave the way for, for more and more and more crises, right? As I expand into new markets and as I compete with people that I haven't been in competition with. Right. Um, and so this births the proletariat, right? The, the further exploitation of markets, right? So like I said, in the beginning, it wasn't so bad, right. right? People were getting paid, we're getting new products, life is getting better, but because everyone is doing it and there are all these industries, at some point, I'm going to need to exploit better or else I'm just going to get squashed by the other bourgeois. Sure. They're going to expand faster than you can and you can't compete with them. Is that the problem? Yeah. Okay. And so this, this is what births the proletariat, yeah. right? The actual real downtrodden bottom worker class, because it is, it is at the, the behest of them to find new ways to exploit the market that they, they create sort of this like bottom, bottom class of exploited peoples. Yeah. And so they are the, to quote, they are the commodified, abuse working man. The work has lost all individual character, right? They're just widgets on an assembly line. The cost of the workman is restricted to the means of subsistence he requires for maintenance and the propagation of his race. And so, like, I only going to pay him enough so he can live and make kids. And that's, that's all I really want to pay him. Yep. And here's, here's where he starts mentioning people that, this is one of the spots where he mentions people that he doesn't really say what class they fall into. Um... These are placed under the command of a perfect hierarchy of officers and sergeants. So they don't own the means. Oh, interesting. Right? If they're officers and sergeants, think, think a manager. Right. Where does a manager fall? Uh, my instinct is to say bourgeois, but I don't know that. But he doesn't own the means. Right. No, you're right. But they're still higher up than the, again, he's thinking, he's writing in middle, you know, 1850s or whatever. He's thinking the factory worker, right? So someone who's like on the factory line, but who's like, but the boss of the low of the like he's got like fifteen guys that he's responsible for. Yeah, but, but his labor up, isn't the same, and he's getting paid yeah, more. That's yeah. what I mean. That's why. That's what I think would push him into bourgeoisie territory. But I don't know that. Uh, you, later, he'll start using this term, the petty bourgeois. Oh, there you go. And I think maybe that's, that's what his classification. Yeah. But right there we see the dissolution of the two camps. Now there's not two camps, right? There's three camps. Yeah. I mean, and this is, 
I think modern Marxists or or even people who are critici- criticizing of it uh, separate the bourgeois into two camps of like the enfranchised bourgeois and the disenfranchised bourgeois. So the disenfra- disenfranchised bourgeois are those who still don't own the means of production, but are of the means and wealth and higher class of those who do, or perhaps maybe in the modern context are like the generation of people who were raised by those who own the means of production and have the the finances that they don't have to go be the proletariat, but themselves don't have control over Mm -hmm. the company or the organization or the factory or whatever. And so they, you know, write for Buzzfeed or whatever. (laughs) Um, <laughs> I mean, it just seems like right here you have the genesis and, and like I said, the dissolution of his theory that it, there are two big classes that are in a fight. Well, if we have another class that's kids that are inheriting the means, but don't have own the means and they're doing this other stuff, they got plenty of cash. They're not the proletariat. And they're not the bourgeois. Well, this is the, this, I mean, this is the criticism of Marx also when we get to the actual Russian revolution is that it's not the proletariat throwing over the bourgeois. It's like the grouchy young students in college (laughs) overthrowing the older, it it ends up being like, um, uh, an age struggle as opposed to a class struggle or generational struggle as opposed to a class struggle. You have an older generation that is maintaining the means of production. And then you have this younger generation who got, they're not going to go be factory workers. No, heck no. They're students. Um, they're middle class. They, you know, live in New York City. Isn't this whatever. kind of what we see in a lot of revolutions? It wasn't the Arab Spring primarily the young. It was young people who had nothing to do during the day that would go out on the streets and protest. Yes. So and the same in Hong Kong. You have the, inf- same in- the older enfranchised bourgeois and the younger disenfranchised bourgeois and the proletariat are still like working. Yeah. They're, they don't have time <laughs> to be out on the street. They're yeah. trying to make ends meet. Yes. Yeah. I guess that's that's what ties us all in with your Gramsci episode. Yes, right? exactly. exactly. That that's is, where Gramsci mm-hmm. will pick up long after Mark, or you know, fifty years after Marx or whatever, and to say why don't the proletariat rise up, and then proposes yes. a solution. For he what says to the do. proletariat don't rise up because they're too busy working. So yes. those who should rise up are like the ones who can the like the grouchy wealthy that aren't that want to be more rich. <laughs> It's true. It's it's funny. That also comes out a little bit in Marx. He yeah. talks about bourgeois versus bourgeois yeah. and how that works. Okay, so he says after we pay the worker, he goes outside and then he is pounced on by other members of the bourgeois, right? The or the bourgeoisie, the landlord, the shopkeeper, the pawnbroker, right? All of these other people, which seems to me like a lower strata of the bourgeois. He says, but he also says the lower strata of the middle class generally sink into the pro- proletariat because they don't have the means to fight this giant chugging machine of, of industry. That's so right. if I'm like, say, a small landlord, I own a small apartment, I can't beat the guy who owns 30 apartments right next to me and wants to buy mine. He's going to push me around until I eventually sell to him, and then I got to go find some place to work. Right? Instead of working for the factory, you worked for the guy who owned the hardware store, and you made more money, and you didn't have to work as hard. But the guy who owned the hardware store eventually lost his hardware store because Walmart came in. Yeah. So now you work at Walmart. <laughs> exactly. It's that kind of idea. Yeah, that kind yeah. of movement. And so then, if you're lower you're, middle class, you'll eventually hit the bottom because keep, you can't you'll resist. move sort of further down. Which, again, to your comment from before, Graham, those problems that Marx is pointing to make a lot of sense, yes. right? And it's easy to be sympathetic to this portrayal of class conflict. But again, being able to tie it to modern day examples with Walmart, Amazon would be the other one to point to all that seems to make a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like I said, there's a lot that's haunting about this sure. and that kind of, I mean, obviously we don't have child labor. We don't have a lot of as many factory debts, but we do have people peeing in bottles when they're delivering packages. Right. Sure. 
And so it may, it may not be as egregious as it used to be, but there still is that feeling of the giant irresistible industry chugging along. And now it's not like when he's talking about it being multinational, now that's for real. Yeah. Like we, people are, they're global corporations. Yeah. If and only there was a way we could all own small par- parts of that company. <laughs> Distributism? Are you, no, is that? No, yeah, that I mean, we have, oh, like, you mean the I mean, people sort of right bo- like belittle the, the market as being this thing of for only the wealthy, but like, Anyone can buy it. 20 bucks, you can buy a share of GE. Sure. For 20 bucks, you can buy a portion of shares. Like, there, most of the places you can trade now, you can do portional shares. Yeah. Sure. Um, anyway, so we can, yeah, we're not talking about, but that's, about okay, how to fix things. We're talking about, I don't know enough about the, you know, from 1880 or whatever when Marx dies until now. But again, we've gone from, you know, there's no set work week, there's no 40 hour work week. Weekends aren't really acknowledged exactly. as a thing. Mm-hmm. Minimum wage doesn't exist at that point. Health standards don't exist. Like there are important, and I don't, again, I don't know the specifics, but I think unions are a big part of that transition where yes. mm-hmm. there were many with kind of more Marxist leanings. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Like, so th- this is what, what Marx is writing. It's like the Wild West. Like yes. and, you and got so, kids working 80 hours so a day. The really funny thing is you limbs. just mentioned unions uh-huh. and that's the next place he's oh, is going. It? Okay. Yeah. Just yeah. Say, uh, yeah. So he, yeah. he says w- with the birth of that, class comes the birth of struggle, right? They're not happy, right? right? The proletariat aren't having a good time, but they always fight the wrong thing. Right. Instead of overthrowing the people who are paying them, they fight their landlords and they fight other problems and they fight the people, who, the politicians. Mm-hmm. And instead of fighting the people who are abusing them, the, the factory owners, right. they're fighting everybody else. But he says what comes out of that fight is usually some sort of trade union, mm-hmm. right? And those unions are the valuable thing, connecting the workers and sure. setting the stage for a future big fight, Right. So we just see bigger and bigger polarization here, and we see unity within the part within the party. And, and then, like this is why we have slogans like "Workers of the World Unite," right? Because yeah. they're wanting to get all the workers to get to the place where they can like throw down. I think that's actually a direct quote from Communist Manifesto. Well, I mean, it's, you see, that's the that's you know, you see it on the on the flags. Yeah. So we'll get there. That's that's yeah, sort of near of okay. near the end. And, but he says this, this isn't where the struggle stops because the bourgeois obvi- bourgeoisie obviously have to fight each other, right? They're fighting each other for territory. Mm-hmm. They're fighting the old monarchy, right? Those who are still in power but don't necessarily own the means of production. They're fighting all the stuffs that would stop them from expanding. They're fighting laws. They're mm-hmm. fighting, like they, they are in all kinds of different fights, often just with each other, right? right. For territory and for expansion. And yep. so they have to appeal to the proletariat for help against these things. So if I want to beat my other my competition, I'm gonna have to talk to my workers and say, look, listen, guys, we gotta step it up. Like I'm gonna need your help beating this thing. You gotta go and try to sell my products. You gotta make sure our factory wins. So mm-hmm. we gotta like we just gotta ramp it up, boys. Sure. And so I ha- basically I, I need to educate them. I have to give them you know more money or whatever I need to. And basically I, I arm my own grave diggers, the people oh, who are going to overthrow me. Okay, right. That's kind of where he says. So. The proletariat are virtually without property, and they begin, because they are just so crushed by working, they view all of these old ideas, law, religion, morality, all of those things, as primarily bourgeois interests, right? right. That, I think that's a weak point for them, though. And that, that I kind of thought so, too. So let me... Like, the proletariat don't think that God is a, bu- a bougie thing. <laughs> like, that's yeah. just not true. So I'll read the quote. Law, morality, religion are to him so many bourgeois prejudices behind which lurk in ambush just as many bourgeois interests. All the preceding classes that got the upper hand sought to fortify their already acquired status by subjecting society at large to the con- their conditions of appropriation. 
The proletarians cannot become masters of the productive forces of society except by abolishing their own previous mode of appropriation, and thereby also every other previous mode of appropriation. They have nothing of their own to secure and fortify. Their mission is to destroy all previous securities for and insurances of individual property. Right? So because they can't really get a lot, the way they get stuff is by making money. The only way they can overthrow the, the previous mode is by abolishing the way that they made money. So they, they kind of have to get rid of individual property. And this is, that's right near the end of chapter one. So he's sort of established the problem, right? The problem is we've got these two big splits. Property, but also um, um, institutions, right? Like he, he does mean the church here. He means the church and he means abolishing these sort of these old, these old ways that are keeping them, uh, keeping them down, the systems of power that are sort mm-hmm. of pulling them down. It includes laws. It's got to be government too. Go- government, right? yeah. Government, in, uh, in, like religious institutions. And this is, these are the things that get picked up with the more social um, uh, communists as opposed to like Marx is really talking about ec- economics whereas Gramsci is talking about culture yes. and the sort of cultural Marxism is where they they say okay let's we're not going to be able to seize the factories but we can see we can create our own institutions or I be thought, part of other institutions I thought Gramsci was trying to use those cultural forces to get the economic revolt eventually but the economic yeah. revolt ha- yeah you can't do it until you have this buy-in. Until you've got this buy-in, and the only way to get the buy-in is to is to have the forces of culture be um, infected, whatever yeah. you want to call it, it be, be taken over. So we've pretty much finished part one, the problem. Yeah. Mm-hmm. At, looking back, how do you feel about his evaluation of society as a whole? Does it... Like I've said, I, I think yeah. he uh, gets more right than wrong with it. Um, it's the same view of society and the same view of the problem that uh, we talked about with our Distributist podcast episode of Hilaire Belloc and, and G.K. Chesterton. The idea being that, sort of simply put, when you have capital um, and you have the game of capital, making more capital with lending and with factories and with producing... It is a game where the capital eventually flows to fewer and fewer and fewer people um, and gets more centralized and more centralized and more centralized. And you get to some kind of social tipping point where you have um, most of the people holding the means of production either in terms of money and very few people having any means of production. Um, and so now you have, and now you have to ha- come up with some sort of solution. Marx's solution is going to be a um, a what's it, a, a, a collectivist one, and the capitalist solution is going to be a um, what Pelaire Belloc postulates is that it is a slave one of slavery, where basically you just have like five people with all the money and they create social contracts and everybody signs it and they like control us all. Um, or then there's some sort of th- or the third way, and the third way is the distributist way. We're not talking about that today, which is fine. But I think. Marx is getting, uh, is putting his finger on the pulse of the issue. And the issue is, is that um, run the program long enough and you get imbalances. Well, and that's, that's the problem with truly free trade, which is why we have monopoly laws in the U.S. Antitrust laws. Yes. If, if we couldn't step in and break up the big conglomerations when they got a little too big for their britches, They'd eventually just buy everything, yeah, and they'd own it all, right? Mm-hmm. We'd be in the Google sphere. Mm-hmm. They would own the banks, they would own the roads, they would own everything there is to own, That's and right. we would just live in the Google world. Bitcoin fixes this. 
Actually, no, it doesn't. Yeah, uh, DAOs, uh, Distributed yeah. Autonomous Organizations. Do the, um, yeah, it might. They fix it. They're mm-hmm. decentralized autonomous organizations. Either that or just like people buy all the Bitcoin and then... Oh. Google would buy all the Bitcoin and then s- and let us rent them? Yeah. Oh, man. I don't like this at all. That's a messed up thought. Okay, so... I, for one, welcome our new Google Open <laughs> <laughs> I would I would rent a Bitcoin. Yeah. Sounds, sounds like fun. Rent it for a day. Take it out. Okay. So the next question is. Well, he did, maybe. What do you think? Do you think he's? Do you, what do you think of? Uh, is Marx getting? Yeah, he establishes the problem well, and yeah. then, uh, yeah. Okay. The the interesting stuff is probably as we get into part two. Yeah. So part two is. <laughs> Ouch. The. <laughs> the first forty minutes have been really boring. <laughs> I hated the first forty minutes of this podcast. I hope the last twenty minutes redeem it. Am Are we forty uh, minutes in? Yeah, for sure. Holy smokes! I overprepared again. Okay, that's fine. We might we might leak over the conversation, or I might have to gloss over a few things. Mark's part two. Well, electric Mark, Mark's part two. Yeah. Electric boogaloo. Yeah. The com- community boogaloo. Yeah. Because communist. I guess. It was really funny. I don't know. Okay. I nailed it. Okay, part two, proletarians and communists. So how what do we do? How do the communists fit in? Right. He's talked about the two parties. Where do we land? And basically, they say, we don't have any interests. Well, here, I'll just, I'll just read it. The communists do not form a separate party opposed to other working class parties. They have no interests separate and apart from those of the proletariat as a whole. They do not set up any sectarian principles of their own by which to shape and mold the proletarian movement. We are distinguished from the other working class parties by this only. One... The national struggles of the proletarians of the different countries, they point out and bring to the front of the the common interest of the entire proletariat, independent of all nationality. So we're not interested in just one Germany's proletariat. We're interested in all of them and we want to bring all of that to the fore. How benevolent. And two, in the various stages of development, which the struggle of the working class against the bourgeoisie has to pass through, they always and everywhere represent the interests of the movement as a whole. So what in whatever stage you're in, the communists know where we're going and we're going we're gonna to point you the right direction, how to get there. Saved at last. <laughs> okay. And the, the funny thing is, this, this is the other part you're going to laugh even more at. The communists, therefore, are on the one hand practically the most advanced yes. and resolute section of the working class parties of every country. That's a great point. That section which pushes forward all others, on the, on, on the other hand, theoretically... They have, over the great mass of the proletariat, the advantage of clearly understanding the line of march, Mm. the conditions, and the ultimate general results of the proletarian movement. Right? They're the first amongst equals. (laughs) Yeah. So, the immediate aim of the communists is the same as that of all other proletarian parties. Formation of the proletarian into a class, overthrow of the bourgeois supremacy, conquest of political power by by the proletariat. So, look, we know where we're going. We can guide everybody there. We know exactly what we're aiming at. And so what we got to do is we got to get together. We got to throw these fools out. Monorail, monorail. (laughs) (laughs) And then it seems like they sort of bring all of it into one big summary of their aims. What would you say, if you could summarize what the aim of the party is, Single sentence, cynically or or uh, well, give me a, give me a one sentence summary of the aim of the Communist Party. Overthrow of the bourgeoisie. Nope. Oh, oh that would have been my answer. A quote. In this sense, the theory of the communists may be summed up in the single sentence: abolition of private property. Oh, oh. okay. Right. They want to overthrow private property altogether. They think that is how they're going to establish the dissolution of these two classes. If I can't own anything, what reason do I have to exploit anybody? Right? Jerk. I can't own, I can't own a factory. Because mm-hmm, you're so, a jerk. It's kind of fun. <laughs> I mean, maybe. And I think, I think maybe that might be one of the 
the things to which the Communist Party didn't see coming right yeah. if we if we give the government all the means of production <laughs> sin yeah <laughs> yeah if we give the government all the means of production there's not going to be anybody in the right. government that'll take advantage of that like yeah that might be one of the short-sightedness here but they think if no one can own the factory then there's no reason for anyone to exploit anybody else yeah. right and so they want to abolish private property the funny thing is is that they don't want to abolish the private property of the proletariat just the bourgeoisie sure. mm. Well, there's and, not as much of it for the proletariat, right? Yeah, the 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 deal is, is that, so here, I'll read you a quote. Hard-won, self-acquired, self-earned property. Do you mean the property of the petty artisan and the small peasant, a form of property that preceded the bourgeois form? There's no need to abolish that. The development of industry has a great extent already destroyed it and is still destroying it daily. So they're so, not, not coming for my butter churner? They're not coming <laughs> for your butter churner because eventually the industry is going to take that anyway. anyway and it's right. been taking all the stuff you own. Sorry, you're probably renting it right now, right? You don't own a butter churner. I inherited it. Doesn't matter. Good. And so they're basically saying, we're not taking any of that. We are just, just focusing on the property of the top, at this point, top 10%. He says 90% of the people have nothing. They, they are working wage laborers, barely just keeping it going, getting their meals day to day. It's only that top 10% that we're aiming at, and we're yep. going to take what they have, yep. right? We simply want to restore the social aspect. And he says property is based on the antagonism of capital and wage labor. But the thing is, capital is a social power, right? If I'm going to accumulate a mass of wealth, can I do that alone? No. You need to sell to other people. You need to, again... He's focused on 19th century, so you need a giant factory to do it. You need lots of, you talked about raw supplies earlier, which today you don't need, right? You can be a Bitcoin millionaire and never talk to anyone. I'm an influencer. But, <laughs> but even with Bitcoin, like, can't exist without the, the actions of a thousand Ads, people sure. that are running yes. the Bitcoin totally yes. network. Like, yeah. it, it is a social thing. If yes. I want to get rich, I cannot do it alone by making my own little widget and selling it again and again. I, I feel like there is maybe some modern yeah, thing someone's where Someone's got to smash that like and subscribe. Button. <laughs> <laughs> it could be you. Yeah. <laughs> my name is Thomas. <laughs> Maybe, maybe perhaps I could think like art. If I make a painting that everybody goes gaga over, I can sell that painting and make a whole bunch of sure. money. That's not so much of a social well, aspect. Like a, mm. Wasn't it J.D. Salinger who like lived in a cabin by himself? Yep. So, you know, write the hit book, never talk to people, mm -hmm. but you still need people to buy it. That's the problem. Yeah. Right? But back then when he was talking about accumulation of wealth, he primarily meant Fact I need a factory, factory full of yeah, people 100%. to make it. And so it's, a, it's a social aspect, yes. right? And so because it's social, they want to restore the social quality of the property, meaning everyone should get a piece of what they worked for, which sounds like a pretty noble aim, right? Yep. If, if a whole factory of people work to make it yep. to get all this capital together, why shouldn't they have a piece of the ownership? Sure. Like a share. <laughs> <laughs> it's, exactly, it, it's exactly what it is. And, and there are companies that are set up this way. Again, we joked about um, DAOs, decentralized autonomous organizations, but you buy in and then you have an equal vote with other people. Mm -hmm. Many factories are like this also, though usually the higher up co-ops, right? Like, co-ops yeah. would be like that. So again, the structure can't exist, but Marx is arguing this for all organizations, not just ones that opt in. Correct. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and so that's what we want to do. To quote, he says, in one word, you reproach us with intending to do away with your property. Precisely so. That is just what we intend. Yep. And so at this point, he kind of goes away from talking to people at large and is addressing almost directly the bourgeois. It's this weird change of 
address. It's instead of we want to address Europe and say what our aims are, it goes to I'm I'm just going to yell at the bourgeois for a while. And the next it's so now he goes into a portion where he kind of answers the criticisms that are leveled at the at the communist party. So will laziness overtake us, right? If we do away with this and centralize all of the means of production in the in the government, right? No, Which is kind of like, what they want to do. They want to take like, all the factories, let the government run it, and then if the government is running it, everybody gets to work. No, when the laziness won't overtake us, we got like gulags and stuff. <laughs> so he says it won't because right now it's flipped anyway. The people who are mm. working aren't making anything, and the people who are making any money aren't working. And so like laziness has already sort of overtaken us, right? And so will it get worse when we take all of that money and put it into the government? No, because the workers are still like, they're still going to work. And so he says, that's not really an issue. And then he talks a little bit about the abolition of the family. It's very unclear why he wants to do that or exactly how that will be affected. He doesn't spend much time on it. He's like, you say we want to get rid of the family. We do (laughs) like you're already getting rid of our families is kind of the attitude he takes is you are already destroying the ties between family. And if you say, I want to do away with the exploitation of children by parents, like having your kids work at the factory. Yeah. I want to do that too. And then he, he also talks about wanting, education to be socialized, right? So social educations rather than private education, you get mad at that. There's also a really funny bit about the community of women. He doesn't really define what that is. It sure seems like everybody has everybody, everybody in common. belongs to everybody. There yeah, that's what it feels like. And he says, you guys make, you you bourgeois get, make fun of us for that. Well, right now you engage in all sorts of prostitution. You find prostitutes, you, and- <laughs> You got like Tinder- yeah, let me see if I can find the the little bit of it right here. Well, this is this reminds me of Lebesnyatnikov and Crown Punishment. Like this is he's a character who's a, who's proto communist who is so jacked about the future utopia where all the women oh. aren't married but they all are like sexually available to him. He's like, this is progress, baby. <laughs> <laughs> That's kind of what it feels yeah. like. The funny thing is, he levels instead of defending his own idea mm-hmm. of how a community of oh, women will work. He's just he, like, he, he launches back at the bourgeois and says like, yeah, you know, your favorite hobby seducing each other's wives. Mm-hmm. And then he goes on. I kid you not. I wish I, I had the quote in here. I, I didn't copy it down, but he basically says you engage in all sorts of prostitution. And not only do you steal the wives of your workers, like you, you sort of take over them, but you seduce each other's wives. That's right. So now it's don't you dare turn. sass us. Yeah. Our, we're, because he was, Marx was, uh, Marx was married and he had like seven kids. So that's, Anyway, it's funny because he fell into the structure that he's. And he didn't pay them for their chores. Mm-mm. It's probably exactly right. I think I think most of them uh, died when they were very young. Mm. Uh, but uh, yeah, anyway, he yeah he also wants to he wants to do away with like nation and national ties. And he says, yeah, sure, but you are already destroying our national ties, right? You're abolishing local markets. You're like. If I'm working all day, what can I, what do I have to do with my country? And so what's the difference? I can't take something from a man if he doesn't have it already. Right. And, and so he kind of just responds to all of these criticisms that are leveled at the Communist Party. And he says, here's, here's what's going to happen. This is how we're going to affect our grand plan. And he gives 10 steps. So here's the 10 steps of communism. Okay. Uh, wow. Here's okay. the solution Did right here. Number one. Abolition of property in land and application of all rents of land to public purposes. So it's a big first step. Yeah. No property in land. No property. Yeah. Right. Number two, a heavy progressive or graduated income tax. But there's no property. How? So income. Like I can't so own the land. So people still 
own money though? Like, yeah, you no. can still have money, but I can't, like, I can't own the land. Because modern, modern parlance with property means like an asset. You mean like literal land. Like I might property. mean actual land. Okay. So he, he says yes. So, and heavy graduated income tax. Okay. And he says, we're not, we can't just take over and then all of a sudden make all the changes we want. This is a I'm progressive, graduate. like this is my plan for progressive change. Once, once we rest away political power, here's how we will eventually get to the communist utopia. Oh, right? so he's, so he's reasonable about these changes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Number three, abolition of all right of inheritance. Oh, my butter churner. <laughs> yeah, your yeah. kids my boy, ain't going to get that. My boy yeah. can't boy get, gonna get your butter churner. And if you make a lot of money churning butter, more and more of that's going oh, to tax. Oh, man. Which is funny. We actually have progressive tax here in the U.S., right? The richer yes. you are, the more you pay. Yes. I don't know if that's the same as the heavily graduated income tax he's talking about. Yeah. He, does he give numbers to any of that stuff? No. Nah. Yeah. Because our, our top tax rate used to be 90%. Like we've we've come down uh, many uh, since then. Yeah. yeah, I'm raising my come and take it flag. <laughs> Good. <laughs> Number four: confiscation of the property of all emigrants and rebels. Emigrant with an E or with e, an I? E. So people leaving? Yeah. Oh, so, anybody so they leave and take that stuff. Yeah. Okay. So they and can't you, they can't leave the country and take all their goods. And away. all the rebels don't and all get the rebels. To keep stuff. Which is weird because he is in sort of inciting rebellion. Well, he's assuming it. Yeah, that's kind of weird. Number. Number five, centralization of credit in the hands of the state well, by the, means of a national bank yeah. with state capital and exclusive monopoly. The yeah. trick so, is you just get to call everybody rebels and you yes. take all their stuff. Yeah. Yes. yeah. So, so basically, state bank, the central bank owns it all, right? And Concentration the Fed, of the wealth. The Fed. The, that's what ETF stands for. What does he? And the Fed. I don't think that's what that stands for, actually. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that's not true. Six, centralization of the means of communication and transport in the hands of the state. So not only did they get all the money, they're getting all the trains. Okay. Sugar, sugar, sugar. Wait, so go back to this bank. So he oh. thinks the, the, there should be a central bank. That does all credit. That does all, all credit. credit. Yeah. And an exclusive oh. monopoly on it. Yeah. So basically, I can't owe my landowner. You only own the government. I only owe the government. Yeah. What could go wrong? Uh... Well, the government is owned by all of us, oh, right? Oh, that's, right. So that's I, the other piece. It's really like I'm paying myself. Yeah. So that, that's part of the premise here is that he doesn't think that, like, the government is going to be run by the proletariat. Gotcha. And so as long as the government is in the, in, in the hands of all the people, yeah. then right. all the people own everybody else's credit. Awesome. Right. Same, Spread it around. Same as credit unions, right? Mm-hmm. You have all these people who own it together, and it's like a community that is giving you a loan for your car or house or whatever. Mm. It's not a bad, I mean, that, yeah. it, it, anyway. Number seven. Extension of factories and instruments of production owned by the state and bringing into cultivation of wastelands and the improvement of the soil generally in accordance with the common plan. So if we own all the factories, let's make them nice. Let's get some soil going, right? Number eight, equal obligation of all to work. Establishment of industrial armies, especially for agriculture. So everybody's got to keep working, but you're not, but it's, it's everybody. Like I can't exploit because... There's no reason to exploit. I have to work. They have to work. Everybody's got to be working. And so the working man is going to survive better because everybody will be under the same conditions. Sure. It's just funny that you're compelling work that way. But yeah, he, he has to do it somehow, right? Yeah. This one's a fun one. Combination of agriculture and manufacturing industries. Gradual obligation of the distinct. Uh, sorry. Gradual abolition of the distinction between town and country by a more equitable distribution of the population over the country. So we're going to spread out the towns. Yes. Everybody's got to move, move further from each other. Oh, man, suburbs everywhere. It seems like a weird yeah, thing. But it evens it out. It's not, I don't even know yeah. if suburbs the right term, because you wouldn't have an urban center. It's more anymore. like one big yes. flat city. Yeah. It's kind of bland. Okay. And number 10, free education for all children in public schools. 
Abolition of Children's Factory Labor in its Present Form. I really like that one, actually. Sure. Combination of Education with industri- Industrial produ- Production, etc. And free public school is like a good idea too, right? I, I don't I don't know what literacy rates were at the time, yeah. but like teaching your population to read is like a good thing, right? Yeah. Okay. And it says, so if if the proletariat during its contest with the bourgeoisie is compelled by the force of circumstances to organize itself as a class, like if that's a class up, by means of revolution, it makes itself the ruling class and as such sweeps away by force the old conditions of production. So if it wins, right, we've swept away the old ruling class. Then it will, along with these conditions, have swept away the conditions for the existence of class antagonisms and of classes generally, and will thereby have abolished its own supremacy as a class. So this is his idea for getting rid of class antagonism, is if we all rise up and we sweep away the old means for how classes existed, then we can't be supreme anymore, because there are no classes. That just seems like a semantic trick. It's like saying if we want to get rid of pickpocketing, we just like abolish pockets. <laughs> yeah, kind of, yeah. Sure. Or make, make pickpockets rich. And then they won't want to pick anybody's pockets anymore. Yeah, sure. it just seems. Yeah, it seems weird, and, and it seems like a the notion that once we're in charge, <laughs> classes won't exist anymore. So we're not really in charge anymore, mm-hmm. or everybody's in charge. It seems like you are expecting people to act a certain way once they've reached supreme power. That people in supreme power have never acted. Or if there's like a person you hate. So again, there's this conflict between the bourgeoisie and the proletariat. Will you get rid of the bourgeoisie? He, he doesn't go into how you get rid of them, but um, so it's like that person leaves and you think there's no more hatred left in the proletariat. You know what I mean? Like it, yeah. it, it ignores that that would just move to someone else again to say differently. Think of some rich person who people hate. If that person were poor, people would probably still hate them. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, it's, the, it's interesting because it, it, in the background, it assumes a certain kind of anthropology, right? Like it assumes a, it assumes things about the human person, and then as build, long as we and have, then yeah. builds a society around, around that. that. But if that assumption is mistaken, and we've sort of been joking about like uh, people in power aren't going to be sinful, right? Like, um, uh, but if you get that wrong, then then you're just going to have. You're just going to have power. You're just going to have this power imbalance under a different name. And that's exactly what we've seen when anybody's sort of taken communism as a, like an attempt. Well, and in maybe one of the most dangerous ways. We've taken away from everyone the means of production, mm-hmm. which means means. We've yeah. taken means away from everybody, and we've consolidated it in the hands of whoever's running the government. And if and that means that they are and really said, hard to fight worry, against. don't worry. We got you. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, and we're, so We're going to use this really well. Yeah. Right? We have no more means. Mm-hmm. I, we, all, we all gave it away, mm-hmm. right, is the problem. So that's, yeah, that, that's kind of the. And again, and this bit. is going back to Belloc and Chesterton. This is their this is their warning in Servile State is whether or not you're going to be under the control of like the supreme capitalist, the person who ha- who w- wins the wins monopoly and has all the money, mm. or whether you're not going to be under control of the people who say they aren't, but they are the centralized power. <laughs> right. You're still, you're still uh, enslaved. Like you're still under their authority. Um, and so, you know, yeah. Okay. Briefly, yes. I'm going to, I'm going to bring it all, bring it all home with this. Part four is basically just saying how they relate to people in different countries, like how, mm-hmm. how we support the different movements. And this is how it ends. So this is the final words of the communist manifesto. It's like maybe a couple paragraphs in short. The communists everywhere support every revolutionary movement against the existing social and political order of things. We support everybody. In all these movements, they bring to the front as the leading question in each, the property question, no matter what its degree of development at the time. Finally, 
They labor everywhere for the union and agreement of the political parties of all countries. The communists disdain to conceal their views and aims. They openly declare that their ends can be attained only by the forcible overthrow of all existing social conditions. Let the ruling classes tremble at a communistic revolution. Rough. The proletarians have nothing to lose but their chains. They have the world to win. And in, in bold, really big, bold letters, working men of all countries unite. unite. Yeah. And that's it. That's the end of it. About 60 pages long. Totally worth a read. It's intense. Yeah. It's, it's so what do you fun. think? What do you think after reading it, Hannibal? I It seems to me simplistic and I, I like I, I think that looking through looking through this lens at at structures that really were abusive like child labor was sure. not healthy the factories were dangerous places like they really were in the industrial revolution and so a reaction against that against that wanting labor unions and protection for the working man totally makes sense but it is an awfully rosy view of what can happen if you abolish the family and centralize all the power in whoever's running the government and take away the means of everybody. And the compulsion to work for everyone to work equally is fine until some jobs suck worse than others. Right. What if I'm get the guy compelled to clean the porta potties and somebody else is com- compelled to sit behind a desk and answer phones to like brush the puppies. Yeah. Yeah. Pu- a puppy brusher. Exactly. Uh-huh. That's going to, that's not going to make me happy very long. Yeah. Right. Especially if I'm compelled to work long, difficult hours and hot porta potties in in the summer, right? That's not going to be a, a friendly thing for me. And it also seems... New boss, same as the old boss, right? <laughs> yeah. And it also seems naive in the multifarious ways that people try to accumulate power, right? It's not just owning a factory that puts me in a position where I can abuse others. And it also kind of ignores the the strata of any complex social system, right? Even in the US, we have we have these people, the mm-hmm. ultra capitalists, right? We've got our Elon Musks and we've got our Bezoses and... Like a lot of us are still doing okay, but we still have small business. We still have commerce. I could still go start a little business of my own. Sure. Maybe it wasn't possible during Marx's time. It certainly is during ours. Yeah. And so I don't know. I think elements of it are important to think about. Maybe we can talk more about like uh, uh, it in modern time also in our in-between episodes since we're pushing yeah. up on time. Yeah, here. we're pushing up on the edge here. But I think it is a worthwhile read. It, it definitely informs a lot of the stuff that came after it. And it's such a poignant little paper that there's no, there's no reason not to read this thing in like an afternoon and then kind of get a footing for that attitude as it spread out from there. Gotcha. Yeah. Cool. Yes. It's important. Yeah. Everyone should read it. I mean, yes. you can search for it and find it online in a PDF. I'm sure. Right? Easy. Is yeah. That- yeah. It's so easy to come yeah, by for sure. All right. This has been classical stuff. You should know. Thank you, AJ for a great episode. Oh, oh, great baby. episode! A wonderful episode. We're not going to rise up next time. I guess I'm doing one on pirates. Now that now that you wet <laughs> it was a great idea, right? Apple pirates. Ooh. Actually, that's a that is a really great You've idea. Talked about Caesar and pirates before. So Bluebeard. Just and... Tell that story again. And uh, yeah, why Santa are we Claus, doing pirates? Santa before? Claus and pirates, right? Uh, didn't he put people back together or something? What were those pirates? What are the barrel children? Was that Santa Claus? Do you remember? That? Yeah, the uh, Saint Nick and the Barrel Kids. So something about was that they were like though? hidden and killed in barrels or something. Yeah. Anyway, I don't remember. Um, okay, so I don't remember what I just said. So probably I said, "Oh, uh, great episode." Uh, oh, you can find us online at on Twitter, Twitter at Classical Stuff. It's spelled funny. Just search for Classical Stuff. You can find us Patreon.com/slash Classical Stuff. There we have in between episodes. So we're going to record a, a you know. Uh, 
another episode after we talk right now. We'll post Hot it on takes. Patreon. Hot takes. So check it out. It's great. You can find us online, classicalstuff.net. Send us an email, the guys at classicalstuff.net. And I think that's probably everything. Anyway, thank you all for listening, and we will see you next week. Bye. Ciao. Unite. Unite.